Welcome everybody to the Chiefcast. It's uh, what what day is it? It's like mid-February of some sort. It's Valentine's Day. Valentine's oh, Day, dude. It's why <laughs> we're all hanging out, dude. What are you guys doing for Valentine's? Dinner. Is that what you is that what you guys got like heart heart articles? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This is a yeah special themed. What are you gonna do for dinner? Uh, we're actually going to Saint what's it called Saint Clair Supper Club. Hey, so yeah. since British. Yeah, uh, we we don't have plans yet. We might go to Bar Louis. Little neighbor, little <laughs> no, Bar Louis went bankrupt. Dude, this? for what? Really? Yeah, they went bankrupt. There's like five Bar Louis in the city. Where's, yeah, it's like <laughs> where people. It's like a widespread chain. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a there's a Bar Louis in Toledo. What um? So what are you gonna do for Valentine's? Uh, we so my wife is working till till eight, so we might do a. There's a little neighborhood bar called Monkey's Monkey's Paw. I have some Lincoln Park that we like. That's nice burgers. Monkey's Pub or Monkey's Paw? The Monkey's Paw. Monkey's Paw. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Or I'll make some dinner. Barley closes 38 restaurants, files for bankruptcy. Oh, dude. This is terrible. Tragedy. It's an American Sorry. tragedy. What are you doing for Valentine's? Well, as I told you guys, I have a friend in town with uh, her dad undergoing a cabbage. She's a good friend from med school. My other, and she's married to my best friend from med school. So he's actually back home and he's gonna surprise her tomorrow. So she, you know, I've been making fun of him for not coming all week yeah. in order to surprise nice. her tomorrow. And then we're gonna double date it, Katie and I, and um, the other couple, we're gonna go to High Sioux and Pilsen. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. Is that good? Have you been it's there? awesome, yeah, I've been a million times, I love it. Shall we talk science, guys? I guess. So what do you do got? Yes, we, we should. I think we all brought some articles to talk about. Yeah. So what do you have? I can I can bring it up. I got two on uh, on a theme, uh, which was uh, unintentionally heart-themed. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually is also unintentionally heart-themed. Yeah. What Slash intentionally. <laughs> you guys are so romantic. Subcon- subconsciously. Um, Chief, Chief romance. The, so there are two of them. I'll talk about both. Um, both about anti... Uh, hypertensive. So one of them is uh, an article from The Lancet uh, last year, the end of last year in October. And it's this big uh, observational study of about, uh, they actually looked at 4.9 million patients um, and and really tried to compare all of the first line antihypertensive agents. So Did they look prospectively or retrospectively? It was retrospectively. Okay. Um, and so they they looked at thiazides, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, uh, calcium channel blockers, all, all the ones that we typically use. And the reason this is interesting is because these medications are very, have not recently been compared head to head. There was, you know, they kind of compared some of the, the classes of these in the All Hat trial, but that was over two decades ago. Uh, that hat is way old and in yeah, the closet. Yeah, so... Out so, of fashion. Uh, and so the and realistically, these probably will never be compared head to head because there's no real reason to do that. There's no you know there's no pharmaceutical company that'll pay for this. Um, and so that's why that's kind of where the benefit of these you know observational data is not uh, compared to uh, randomized controlled trials is not as convincing a lot of times. But 
there is a role for it, in, especially in these things that will probably never be studied. And, and when you're looking at 4.9 mil, million patients and using um, kind of advanced statistical ways to, to try to match these, um, these patients in, in a propensity-matched um, way, which is essentially just trying to make it so that you're matching patients with similar similar characteristics. Now you got to be looking at specific characteristics in order to match them, but it kind of gives you a group that uh, that a kind of a pseudo placebo group in a in an intervention group, um, in in some cases and in this case between these different classes. So um, the gist of it is that the thiazide and thiazide like diuretics uh, were actually more effective than ACE inhibitors in three specific uh, outcomes, which were their primary outcomes, acute MI, uh, heart failure hospitalization, and stroke. And the reason that's important is because a lot of times, you know, we're choosing between thiazides and ACE inhibitors maybe for our first-line antihypertensive. And this, um, this may be, you know, provided everything else is equal, this may be something to push you more towards thiazides. Um, additionally, the safety profile of thiazides was better than uh, than ACE inhibitors, so that kind of uh, that kind of is another reason. Maybe um, this would be a potential good first line. Notably, they also compared thiazides to calcium channel blockers, and they were uh, they did not see this this difference. So um, this kind of is is a specific situation where you're thinking of of a thiazide hmm. versus an ACE inhibitor, um, but I think this would would push me to, to pick a thiazide over an ACE inhibitor. Very cool. And how, just kind of randomly, how does this compare with the kind of the current GNC guidelines? Yeah, so our most recent blood pressure uh, guidelines, which are the the joint, wait, what was it called? JNC, what does that stand? Yeah. I don't remember what it stood for. That commission is dead. It doesn't have funding oh, anymore. So there it doesn't exist? No, it doesn't exist anymore. So there will never be any JNC 9. What? Yeah. Uh, so... Wasn't there, like, a pair of jeans back in the 90s <laughs> called Jinko or something? I think there were. Jinko jeans. I saw it right there. Let me see. Uh, anyway, so the ACCHA... Wow, that's terrible. Now every time I think of... J <laughs> now every time I think of JNC, I'm going to think of people <laughs> with very, very wide jeans. Uh, wow. Terrible. Uh, I encourage I every, everyone to back. Google Jinko jeans so you, get a, so you can this get an absurd. image of this. Wow. Ooh. Whatever wear these. Yeah, so this is know, what right? this is what the people making our blood pressure guidelines were wearing while they did so. So well, no wonder. Anyway, no wonder they stopped doing Jinko. <laughs> so the so yeah, there's if this is Jinko nine. I don't want to see Jinko ten. There's okay. never gonna be. Sorry, a, we'll post uh, a link to the Jinko Gene website. <laughs> yeah, you uh, better. Terrible. Uh, there's never gonna be a G JNC nine. That the most recent guidelines are the the 2017. Um, ACCAHA guidelines, and those really recommend uh, any of thiazides, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, or calcium channel blockers as a first line, and, and really they don't recommend one over the other. So um, this does change that's, things that's a little just bit. just in the general population. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there are other reasons like heart failure and other reasons why you might pick a... a Diabetes or CKD. Yes, sure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if we're just talking about hypertension, then this is... This is uh, where this would uh, change awesome. things. Awesome. Well, I'm glad we brought that brought that up. Yeah. And compared it. Great article to talk about. And and yes, it made us Google Jinko jeans. And now I'm also picturing all of all four or five chiefs wearing Jinkos, um, <laughs> at conference. Yes, and that's what's gonna happen. Terrible. Let's leave do, that. Do they? Can you even get these anywhere? Let's leave that in the early 2000s or 90s or wherever they're from. Uh, cool. So then I'll talk about the other one, which is uh, a little linked, and it's about also about 
antihypertensives. And it's something that probably makes sense to all of us, but it, it really hadn't been uh, definitively studied before. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, what I think a lot of times will, you know, depending on where we're practicing, um, whether it's a VA or, or the U, uh, sometimes we'll think about increasing people's uh, blood pressure regimens while they're in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and this study from JAMA Internal Medicine uh, in it's late 2019 to August uh, was a retrospective cohort study. Um, older patients, more than 65 years old, in the Veterans uh, Health Administration, so certainly applicable to mm-hmm. uh, to our VA patients. Um, and they looked at, they also did a propensity matching, so they tried to... to Glenn just left the studio. Did he go to the bathroom or something? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. He looked very, I don't know why he was crying so yeah. much. <laughs> uh, he's very upset about uh, this something. article. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, this, this looked at uh, hospital readmission, serious adverse events, and cardiovascular events at 30 days after discharge. And so, as you might expect, patients who had... Uh, blood pressure meds increased while they were admitted uh, had higher rates of all of these things. They had higher rates of uh, readmission um, and serious adverse events. Uh, and then, sorry, they looked at that that last outcome, the cardiovascular events, was at, at one year because they wanted to see if, okay, maybe we're having some, some short-term negative effects, but if it, if it makes things better long-term, then it may be worth it. And there was no change. So it, it really just shows that in Unless, you know, there's there's a really convincing reason to increase people's blood pressure meds. You're back, Glenn. We were, Welcome we were, back. We were concerned that, you know, if you have to go to the bathroom or anything, just let us know. We can <laughs> no, toss I stuff. I wearing multiple hats. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Glenn is, why are you wearing so many hats? Right? All hats. <laughs> All hats. Perfect. Bring it full circle. Uh, yeah. So basically, don't increase the blood pressure meds when pay, people are admitted. Yeah. You know, they have a lot of reasons for their blood pressure to be transiently higher while they're in the hospital. Um, and that's really a, a long-term thing. And the other thing is these benefits from managing blood pressure come about over a long period of time. Exactly. So. Did they talk about any like adverse events um, that happened? Because that's part of the problem too, right? You, you titrate things aggressively. Then, you know, when the person decides to take the meds well or, you know, if, if whatever factor that was increasing the blood pressure, whether it was stress or diet or sodium or noncompliance then all of a sudden you could drop their blood pressure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the the hazard ratios, so looking at specifically hospital readmissions, um, it's a 27 number needed to harm. So for if you increase the, the blood pressure med- regimen uh, on 27 patients, you're going to um, cause one patient to be readmitted within 30 days. Yeah. Uh, and then thir- serious event, uh, adverse events, which um, were all sorts of things um, like fall, syncope, hypotension, exactly. electrolyte issues, AKI. So these are these are significant uh, adverse events. As I tell are. my HIV pharmacist, don't be a harmacist. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Perfect. I, I mean, I just had a patient today, actually, in my outreach clinic who came in with a blood pressure of 180 over 110. He's not on any hypertensives. And he's like, Doc, this is the second time that my blood pressure is high. And I'm like, you know, yes, what's your diet like? No, all this stuff. And he's like, oh, I live alone. I buy out all the time. I'm like, that's a lot of salt. Number two, I'm like, any cocaine? I was like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, let's stop that. <laughs> so rather than be a harmacist and add medications, you know, try to yeah. do this 
slowly and over a long period of time, exactly. controlling all other factors as well. Yeah, and and you know these are these patients should be followed by their primary care doctor to do this, and not just the person who sees them for three days in the hospital. Exactly, perfect. So Glenn, what what articles do you have? Great. Uh, so mine uh, actually also is a little bit heart related. Uh, mm. Mine comes from circulation, and I to I brought one article, but have a little bit of background to give. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the. Uh, the DAPA-HF trial. Uh, Too much heart stuff. Let's let's pause. Let's talk about <laughs> something ID-related. So, of yep. course, this coronavirus stuff is something that we can't, you know, not mention in uh, the chief cast. Uh, but at the same time, I know you guys have probably read a lot about it, a lot of people asking you questions about it. Um, so I'll just take kind of my two takes. Um, the first kind of uh, uh, historical tidbit about this, you know, in general, there's a lot of circulating viruses in this season, right? Flu, coronavirus, this is part of the human condition. Um, what's scary about the flu and what's scary about this coronavirus is that, you know, there's a lot of reservoirs for some of these viruses in, you know, the animal world. Um, these zoonotic viruses can, can mutate and kind of cross to humans. And that's kind of the underlying theme of viral kind of genetic heterogeneity, which can then um, come to our, you know, to uh, humans and cause more harm than usual or spread more rapidly than usual or any one of these new things. Of course, we're being exposed to a new virus, essentially, with similar characteristics. It is a coronavirus, but it's genetically different because it, it, it kind of transferred itself uh, in this particular case, in a food market, in a fish market in Wuhan, in the province, uh, in the city of Wuhan in China. Um, so one small historical tidbit is um, I went to one of the ID conferences and um, the head of the NIH, uh, the, the infectious disease portion of the NIH, the NIAID, Anthony Fauci, which authors the Harrisons. He's like a, you know, a, a, a big person in ID and in general. Um, but he said, a st he was talking about HIV and he talked about how he was on a flight with George W. Bush in 2001, and George W. Bush told him, what keeps you up as, at night as an infectious disease doctor, as a physician? And he said, bar none, uh, a, a mutation in influenza that is both infective and highly mortal, something like avian flu. Um, the context of that conversation, by the way, was that he said, we can't do much about that. But what, something that keeps me up at night morally is the fact that we have treatment for HIV, but people don't have access to it in Africa and elsewhere. And that's where the Presidential Emergency Fund for, for HIV AIDS started and it saved a gazillion lives uh, in the developing world. But anyways, Anthony Fauci doesn't sleep at night because he's afraid of a virus that is um, highly infective and highly moral. Um, so in the influenza world, the biggest fear is a strain called avian flu. So avian flu is not very infective. There's not a lot of people with it. It hasn't spread like wildfire, as you're seeing now uh, with this coronavirus, but it is highly deadly with a mortality at about 40%. So that is what's scary about avian flu. Um, and again, these things are one mutation away from becoming more widespread, where, where any characteristic can make it go from person to person and become more infective. Um, there's great documentaries, by the way, on Netflix. You know, Pandemic is, is like a multi-series one. Um, I actually stopped watching it because there's a lot of stuff that we've kind of read already in the ID world. But it's interesting that 
they actually monitor these zoonotic viruses. And if new mutations arise, they kind of are sort of trying to get prepared from it. That's how important this is. So moving back to coronavirus, this is a zoonotic virus that you know, mutated and is now affecting humans. It has spread like wildfire because it is a new virus and we don't have immunity for it. It's affecting young and old because we don't have immunity for it. Um, it seems to be quite infective similar to all other respiratory viruses, but it does not seem to be highly mortal. It does not have, seem to have a lot of mortality. I think at this stage, there's, not, there's a lot that we don't know about the early response to this epidemic since China, since China is a closed society and we don't have all of the data. Um, but, you know, looking at the actual numbers, let me pop them up. These aren't 100% recent, but I know we're looking at about 1,000 deaths um, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people and probably undercounted, right? Because there's a lot of people that are staying home with viral respiratory illnesses. There's a lot of people that are not getting tested. So, you know, it's it's quite infective and I would say the mortality is relatively low. Um, to give you, so let me find the actual numbers. So yeah, as of like a, a week ago, we had 20,000, you know, 30, 40,000 people confirmed and about 800 to 1,000 deaths so far. Um, but you know, when I was giving a presentation, uh, you know, in my infection, wearing my infection control hat, some people were, of course, very concerned about this. And I told them, well, what if there were a virus that infected about 31 million people and caused about 50 million medical visits, 370,000 hospitalizations and 30,000 deaths? And everybody was like, oh, my God. And I was like, that's called the flu. So, again, influenza is expected to cause 30,000 deaths this season alone in the United States only. Um, and these are estimates from the CDC. So again, luckily, the coronavirus does not seem to be quite deadly. And in fact, most of the patients that came to the US, there's approximately 15 patients in the US in various cities, including two in Chicago. These are people that are ambulatory. They're at home, in home quarantine, essentially drinking tea and water like anybody else with uh, a respiratory virus would. Um, so. There's a lot of unknowns, but I think ultimately that's kind of the basics of my take with the virus. Now, what do you need to know as a clinician? You need to know the updated person under the under investigation criteria. These are criteria that are sent by the CDC for, you know, developed by Departments of Public Health, et cetera. Who is a PUI, a patient under investigation? Anybody who has fevers or signs of kind of a respiratory illness, cough, shortness of breath, fever, uh, sore throat. Um, so that, which can be anything, of course, plus the epidemiologic risk factors. So travel to China or contact with anybody from China directly um, that had symptoms as well. So always look up those 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 uh, definitions. You can just search them. There's it's in the, our intranet, and you know you can also just Google them to make sure that that you're following the most recent one. But it's these flu-like illness plus risk factors. And what do you do about it? There's no treatment, right? So what you're trying to do is just from pure public health, you want to protect others. So you wear your, your, your masks, you isolate the patient, you call your department of, of uh, infection control and you know they will coordinate with the department of public health. There are RNA, you know, PCR testing that you could do. Uh, previously, we were sending these samples to the CDC. Now we have the capability of doing it right here in Chicago. So you're gonna get an answer right away. Just yesterday in the newspaper, um, it sounds like the kits that the CDC made had some sort of error, uh, but we just got a, 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 a message maybe two hours ago from the Department of Public Health saying, we're cool, our, our, you know, our, we can use ours. Um, so anyways, that's all you need to know. 
you need to have a high suspicion to test people to say, am I, should I be concerned in this patient? Not because from a medical management standpoint, you're going to do anything different, but because from a public health standpoint, you're going to isolate the patient, you're going to call public health, they're going to test and confirm or not. And, um, you know, we're going to make sure that other people don't get it. Um, and that's kind of basic what, what you need to know. And from a logistical standpoint, at this point, uh, for residents, uh, this is something at, at UICL, I can uh, speak of, I'm not sure what the VA is doing, but um, this counts as a red isolation protocol patient. Mm -hmm. So this is a special type of patient. This was developed during the Ebola um, outbreak, but um, is being applied to this as well, um, which is where essentially these pa these patients should be going through the ED and, and probably will be flagged in that point and infection control will be aware of them. But if, if you ever um, hear about these or, or are getting a patient admitted, make sure infection control is aware. Mm -hmm. And these are not, uh, these are attending only patients. So the, the attending will, will see them by themselves and, and no trainee will be involved. In Wait, the, what? Directly in their care. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of scenarios. So um, uh, first of all, we are screening actively. So the chances of you seeing a person directly is, is relatively rare because before they come, before they make their appointments, before, you know, and it, at their appointments, they get asked questions about travel and fever. But let's say for some reason you saw them and you asked the question and you have them. You know, you isolate the patient, you keep them in an empty room, you put your, you know, you, you put a mask on the patient, a regular mask, and then you can use the more advanced airborne masks. And you call infection control. What's infection control going to do? Infection control is going to talk to the patient directly and ask a more detailed questionnaire that the Department of Public Health has given us. And based on those questions, we then, or I should say with those questions, we talk to the Department of Public Health and they make the determination of whether to test or not. And there are three things that can happen. They might say, no, we don't think this is a big deal, or yes, this is a slam dunk and let's test. For those in the middle, there's other things that they might do. They might test for influenza, and if it's positive, then you're done. They might say, you know what, let's just monitor him and send him home, and we will call him every day, the same way that you do with patients with you know, TB and other infectious stuff. There's a variety of different gray areas. Um, and depending on that, you know, if the hospital is going to start an incident command kind of thing and send the patient to the ER and put him in a negative pressure room and all these other things, um, which, by the way, is probably overkill in the sense that this seems to be transmitted just like any other respiratory virus, which is droplet. But in infection prevention, we use our biggest tools when we are not sure how transmission, you know, fully is. We assume that this is droplet, but we don't want to make assumptions and then have other people transmitted. So we just go kind of hardcore. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's a great update. I think uh, it, it calms some fears. You know, you hear a lot about it, that it's absolutely it's kind of a really scary thing in the media. Absolutely. And that's a normal right? part of, uh, of dealing with newly emerging diseases, right? Yeah. There's always um, some degree of, of, of fear, uh, and it's kind of our job to have reasonable fears and try to educate people as best as we can. Yeah. So what uh, do you have? Back to hearts. Cool. Yeah, so we'll go back to the hearts a little bit. So uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about heart failure uh, and the use of one of my new favorite drugs, the SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, How do people call that? S what is it? SGLT, S right? SGLT. Do you call it Zglt? Zglt. Is it German? <laughs> the Flozins. I like yeah, the Flozins. Like yeah, I like Flozins too. Kangle Flozins. But, but Zglt. <laughs> Canical flows in. So, 
just a little background, these drugs uh, are uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, so they work in the proximal tubule of the, of the kidneys, and they basically just make you pee out glucose um, mm. and, and sodium. They block the sodium glucose transporter. Uh, and back in the uh, 2010s, like 2016, 2017, there were multiple trials, the Canvas and the Empareg, that showed uh, improved uh, glucose, to- uh, glucose uh, improved diabetes, A1C, but also improved cardiovascular and mortality outcomes. Uh, and so uh, with that data, there was some evidence uh, in the, in the early... Is he going to the bathroom? He's going to the bathroom. Okay. Uh, there was some evidence that uh, these drugs might actually have a role in heart failure as well uh, and improving heart failure outcomes. So uh, back in November of this year, uh, the DAPA-HF, uh, so in heart failure trial nice. uh, looked at uh, heart failure outcomes using SGLT2 inhibitors. And uh, so that's the first trial I'll look at. Um, there was a multi-center randomized placebo-controlled trial. They had over 4,000 patients, so 47, uh, 4,744 patients who were New York Heart Association class two or four, and they all had an EF less than 40%. Uh, they split the patients into two groups. Uh, patients that were getting uh, dipagliflozin, and then patients that were getting placebo. And then all these patients were also getting standard heart failure therapy. So uh, I think we're all aware that the goal-directed medical therapy for heart failure is going to be beta blockers, uh, renin-angiotensin system inhibitors, and then the mineralocorticoid uh, receptor antagonists. Uh, They also uh, did some analysis that split these uh, patients into ones that had diabetes and ones that did not have diabetes. And they looked at a composite outcome of first episode of worsening heart failure, cardiovascular death, uh, and all the way up to 18 months. And they, the the Flozin group um, uh, basically had a hazard ratio of 0.74 with a p-value of 0.001, so improved uh, the composite endpoint of worsening heart failure and cardiovascular death, uh, which was very exciting. Um, and the trial that I want to talk about a little bit more in depth was data that looked at this at this data set from the DAPA-HF trial. Which I talked about. Yeah, which Colin talked about uh, previously. Um, a few months ago. And so that's that's kind of what I just gave the background on. And, and that showed cardiovascular and mortality, uh, sorry, cardiovascular and hospitalization benefit. Um, but more importantly, this new trial, they looked back at the data and they used... Uh, all the patients that were in that trial filled out a uh, KCCQ, or uh, which is a uh, the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, which is basically looking at symptoms, quality of life, uh, hmm. and those are the big things. So symptoms and quality of life. And so the the gist of it is not only did this this medication improve uh, cardiovascular outcomes and hospitalizations, it also really significantly improved quality of life. Uh, and symptoms from people who have heart failure. Um, and they looked at, so, and they had a number needed to treat somewhere in the range of like 14 to 15, which is really good. Uh, if you look back at some of the, even the beta blocker trials, uh, they had number needed treats in like the high 20s, uh, looking at metoprolol and heart failure. So uh, I think, you know, moving forward, these are going to be drugs that we're going to be using more and more for heart failure. Uh, And someday they may even be kind of standard of care for part of the goal-directed medical therapy for for heart failure um, because they not only are improving cardiovascular outcomes and reducing hospitalizations, 
they're also really significantly improving uh, patient symptoms um, from heart failure. That's pretty really awesome. Exciting. Which is what really matters, right? Yeah, and I think um, a lot of the guidelines in heart failure and a lot of what we do in medicine, we're starting to look more and more at, at quality of life uh, and yeah. symptoms. So and I, kind of patient-centered outcomes, things that yeah. matter. Like who cares if they get an AKI that resolves, but if they live longer and, and with less symptoms, that's huge. Yeah, yeah. that's fascinating. Great article. Yeah, so this was in Circulation. Uh, so you guys want to look that up. Circulation as in the journal. The journal, Circulation. Gotcha. Not as in, like, actually, like, circulating. Okay, who's next? What you got? Oh, that's what I got. Oh, awesome. I thought you had another one? No. I, I gave the background. Gotcha. Of, uh, HF and then gave the update. Awesome. Well, I think with that, then, you know, a couple of good hard articles um, and a little bit of that corona, coronavirus update yeah which by the way coronavirus or coronaviruses coronavirus and covid was the original yeah now it's covid yeah now it's covid covid 19 yeah coronavirus disease i like it and it doesn't isn't it like sars yeah like a sars new sars name for it too yeah because it's you know sars was a, a a different coronavirus much like mers uh you know different zoonotic viruses that pass mm-hmm. through those were actually much had higher mortality yeah. and interestingly and luckily high mortality and lower infectivity this one is high infectivity and low mortality as far as we know yeah but you know another tidbit on this just like i think this virus has a lot i think i find it fascinating not just medically but just politically and mm-hmm. geographically and you know it, it kind of shows all of these fault lines right so first fault line how to how to deal with like a public health emergency in an authoritarian regime, you know, and what, you know, political scientist Fukuyama calls the weakness of strong states. You can build a hospital in two seconds like they did in 10 days, um, but people don't report things because they're afraid of stuff. And then this thing has been festering there since, you know, late November, December, potentially. Um, And then the other aspect of it is how uh, how it has spread dramatically, how it has had significant effects on the economy. Um, so these are, you know, these are major world events, and yeah. I think they're interesting. I mean, it has, like you said, implications for society and the economy. I know even uh, on WBE, WBEZ, they're talking about how a lot of the businesses in Chinatown are struggling. A hundred percent. Yeah. In Chicago, because people are nervous, you know, because of the going to going to Chinatown that they might catch it, which. Yeah. Um, I think is pretty like, extremely. Yeah, extremely masks unlikely. were like outsold in in the yeah. Walgreens in Chinatown. I live yeah. in the South Loop. That's my that's my Walgreens. Yeah. It unfortunately has led to a lot of xenophobia against the, the yeah Chinese people and and again China. every every epidemic, every outbreak, every emerging infectious disease is different, but also similar. So you know if it's if it's this virus, then it's fear, xenophobia, and all these other things. If it's HIV, then it's the same thing towards mm-hmm. a different group of yeah. people. And so it's, it is interesting. With that, we will... I'm that depressing. I'm no? not <laughs> depressing. <laughs> Everyone go get an SGLT2 inhibitor. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's going to save your life. It's good. Get it's, those, good to it's good to it. Get those flows in. Yeah, that's right. Get you a flows in. And happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's yeah. Day. Oh. All right. Bye. Peace.